Welcome back to Throne of Chaos. We are your hosts, Kelsey and Autumn, and today we begin Chapter 1 of Throne of Glass. As always, we do not represent Sarah J. Mass or Bloomsbury Publishing. All opinions are our own. So Autumn is going to begin. So the book immediately opens up with us being introduced to Selena Sardothian, who has spent a year in slavery in the salt mines of a place called Endovir. We learn that she is Ardalan's most notorious assassin, and she's been escorted somewhere by guards and a hooded man in black. So I love that the book immediately opens with us knowing that Selena is a strong female character. We get her name, we learn that she's been in slavery for a year in salt mines, and that she's accustomed to being escorted by more guards than anyone else while being shackled and at sword point. So I think this just proves from the beginning that she's a strong, dangerous character. Mm -hmm. It continues with him leading her through this nice building where the overseers and officials are housed, and he is purposely trying to confuse her by going in circles and zigzagging through the halls and up and down through the floors. And we get a hint of how smart and sassy she is by commenting in her head about how she noticed they were trying to confuse her, but really they just showed her where everything is, and basically showed her how to escape. Mm -hmm. So she can't see anything about the man escorting her because of the hood, but she can see that he is tall and fit. She thinks that this is a tactic used to confuse her as well, and he shifts his head to look at her, and she grins at him. So we immediately get the sass, Mm -hmm. because here she is in shackles as a slave, being escorted through a building, and the guy who's walking her through the building she just grins at him like no big deal yep like she does not care we find out his name is kale westfall and he's the captain of the royal guard this terrifies her to the point where she almost passes out she says she hasn't tasted fear in a while and hadn't let herself taste fear she says the same mantra every morning i will not be afraid and it's what kept her strong and kept her from breaking So this kind of goes ahead and shows that there's some kind of history between this kingdom that Kel represents and Selena because she's terrified. Mm -hmm. We obviously know after finishing the books that the king of Adderlin, the kingdom that Kel serves, is where the people who killed her parents were from when she was a young child. And I will not be afraid. It's so different. It hits so hard. Knowing where she got it from, how it came about. Like, that moment is up there with, there you are, I've been looking for you. Like, when you know the meaning behind the line, Mm -hmm. it's so much more important. And I love that Sarah does this in all of her books. Yeah. And it kind of goes ahead and gives us hints Mm -hmm. to Assassin Blade. Assassin's Blade, which is everywhere throughout this. Callbacks. Yes. To that. Or call forward, I guess. But yes. So Selena notices how dirty her skin is. Her shirt is filthy and torn. Her skin is pale from never seeing the sun. They work in the mines before sunrise and leave after dusk. She says that she was attractive once, beautiful even, but it doesn't really matter now. So we get a hint that, like, she is vain. Yeah. She is vain. Her vanity, for sure. Yes. And... She thinks about how beautiful she was prior to being inside the prison. And I like that Sarah didn't choose between making her 
strong or feminine. Mm-hmm. Like, she made her both. Mm-hmm. Normally, for a female character to be viewed as strong, mm-hmm. their appearance can't be prevalent. They can't yeah. focus on their yeah. appearance. Yeah, I agree. She also notices the stranger's finely crafted sword. Its pommel is shaped like an eagle in mid-flight, and he sees her staring at it and moves his hand up top of it. One, I think it's important to note that Kale's sword never gets a name. Mm-mm. And she names pretty much every sword, even swords we haven't even seen they have names. Yes, and I think it's important to note that Kale's sword never gets a name. Because in the end, he throws it in the Avery River. And so I think it's like him letting go of blindly falling. Of who the, he was. Yeah. Yes. And it shows the captain the of the guard. Correct. Like, this sword didn't have a name because really, truly, Kale didn't have a thought for himself. Correct. I, I like that parallel for sure. You can see in this part, too, he doesn't trust her. And he realized the threat she posed. Even if she's just an 18-year-old malnourished girl slave in this time. Yes. She tries to make more conversation and get information out of him, commenting on how far he is from Rithfold and asking if he brought the army with him. He's still hidden beneath the cloak, but she can feel his eyes on her face, judging, weighing, testing her. She stares back, contemplating how he would be an interesting opponent to face, and she might even have to put forth some effort um i think it's cool to kind of get a look into the geography of the series is that we hear the town rithold so we know it's somewhere important and far from where selena currently is in endovir so i like that we get this little glimpse into the world we're working into she also spies the gold worthen the royal seal embroidered on his cloak. The gold worthen being the royal seal is such a big moment mm-hmm. that we never caught mm-hmm. right from the beginning. It's because, just like put in there as a little detail. Oh, yeah. by the way, there's this. And you brush over it because mm-hmm. you don't. I for sure did. You, yeah. you don't know that like in Air of Fire, you're going to meet actual worthens mm-hmm. and they're going to play a massive role throughout the entire mm-hmm. plot. So, for those who don't know, a Wervin is a legendary winged serpent-like creature that has two wings. Um, so, they're considered to be smaller than dragons. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I'm interested in, we know they had the Wervins made. How were they made? Yeah. Where did this idea of making... Did- how long has that been the royal seal since Gavin founded House yes. Cavalard? It's been their royal seal. Yes, from the beginning that was the royal seal, and I want to know the meaning behind them picking it. Right. I think that's why they ended up making those creatures over other ones is because that already represented the kingdom, the king, his house, and they're like, this is a cool creature, let's make this. Yes. Obviously, we knew from right here that that was their royal seal, and it still just went right over my head. Didn't even think about it ever again. Yes. Obviously, we didn't even know what it was yet, so I just kind of was like, oh, yeah. Which is why I think Sarah's books are great, 
but they hit so much harder during a reread because you learn so many additional facts yeah. that you did not pick up on in your first read because you didn't know how important they played to the plot. Mm-hmm. She hides so much in these offhanded comments that are made. So after this, we finally get to hear this male talk. He replies and says, what do you care for the armies of Adderlin? She notes that it's lovely to hear a voice like her own, cool and articulate, even if he is a nasty brute. And she says nothing and shrugs. So the fact that they have similar voices shows that they might have been from the same area prior to her being in prison. I took it more as the not the way they, it's more of the way they speak, straight to the point, articulate, not necessarily their accents and all. But yeah, it, it could be either way. It could be either way. Also, right here, she's she knows she's annoying him and she loves it. And she yes. she just keeps doing it. <laughs> yes. She starts this from the beginning and never stops. Yes. <laughs> that attitude. So she starts to imagine how nice it would be to spill his blood across the marble and remembers the time when she lost her temper at her overseer when he chose the wrong day to push her too hard we'll touch on that later she goes into gory detail about how she killed him and she knows she could disarm two of these guards in a heartbeat and wonders if the captain would fare better she and grins so we kind of get a look at how bloodthirsty she can be and also that there's some day that is important to her story, which we will obviously learn so much more about later. She thinks her grin unnerves him because he tells her, don't look at me like that, and rests his hand on his sword again. They pass some wooden doors that she recognizes from a few minutes before and thinks that if she wants to escape, all she has to do is turn left at the next hallway and go down three flights of stairs. The only thing all the intended disorientation had accomplished was to familiarize her with the building. Idiots. I love her so much. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like, I love her in this moment because she's like, you you dummies. You idiots. You're all idiots. But also shows she's smart. They think, analytical. They think she's, they think they are smart and, oh, we're going to trick her. She's been raised to do this her whole entire life. Yes. Like, she's a famous assassin. Mm-hmm. I think she she's smarter than being confused by that moment, obviously. Right. Again, she asks where they are going, and he doesn't reply, and she gets annoyed. Her grins and smiles and sweet talking aren't working on him. So she's still running escape scenarios through her head. She says it'd be too loud of an echo in the halls for her to attack him without alerting anyone. Plus, she didn't see where he put the key to her irons. The six guards would be nuisances. And she has on shackles. She also notes that it's now nighttime and with the lanterns, there's no shadows to hide in. So I think this is really further proving how analytical she is of a character. Mm -hmm. And that Sarah is building us up into seeing how smart she is, like how powerful she is. This character is strong and independent and going to be important. Mm -hmm. From the courtyard, she hears the clank of chains and moans of agony from the slaves heading to their quarters. They are in a wooden building, whereas the one she is in now, it's nice, it has marble floors, it's a big contrast difference between the two buildings. 
Along with the dreary work songs they sang all day, the occasional solo of a whip added to the symphony of brutality Otterland had created for its greatest criminals, poorest citizens, and latest conquests. So not only are criminals sentenced to becoming slaves in the salt mines, it's also poor people and people from the lands that Otterland has conquered as well. They just didn't know where to put them. Here, you're going to become slaves. So some of the prisoners were accused of attempting to practice magic, not that they could, given that magic had vanished from the kingdom. This is the first we hear that there is magic, or at least was, and apparently it's disappeared. It's no longer there. She says more and more rebels, mostly from Ilway, arrived at Indavir. She's tried to question them for any news when they arrive, but they are already broken with empty eyes. She wonders if they would have been better off dying on the butchering block instead of being sentenced here, and if she might have been better off dying the night she was betrayed and captured too. So this is our first glimpse. Something happened. Something big happened to get her to here. get her here. How she was captured. She was betrayed. That's how what led her to Endovir. It also shows the level of despair that these people feel currently and this gives us a glimpse into Selena's mental health which is going to be a huge theme throughout the series and how she gets back to a better place in her mental health and that currently she kind of has a very low sense of self-worth yeah like she's vain but she also doesn't think she's actually worth anything which is a big conundrum to me in her personality right also, it's our first glimpse of Ilway, and most of these slaves are from this place called Ilway. Yes. So she quickly dismisses these thoughts because there are more important things to think about as they continue to walk, like if she's finally going to be hanged. She says she is important enough to be executed by the captain of the royal guard, but why are they bringing her inside this building first? They finally stop in front of a red and gold glass doors, but it's so thick she can't even see through them. She says her feet turn leaden and she pulls against him. His grip on her tightens until it hurts and asks her if she would rather stay in the salt mines. She's sure in this moment she's going to die. She's then escorted into the throne room. She describes the opulence and says it felt like a slap in the face, a reminder of how much they profited from her labor. So I think it's fun to note that she's important enough Mm -hmm. to be assassinated by... To be hung by someone who is of importance to this kingdom because she's the famous assassin. But also, I feel like she also alludes to that she's important enough because nobody knows this, but she's Aelin. Mm-hmm. She's one of the most powerful demi-fae in Aurelia. And if the king knew who he had right. in his grips, right, this whole series would be completely different. It also shows the treatment that she's getting, the fact that she says she's important enough to be executed by the actual captain. She's not just your everyday slave. She didn't get put in there because she was revolting or she was in the wrong place at the wrong time. She, she's important. Yes. So he shoves her into the room. Another six guards appear. They all have the gold royal emblem on their breasts of their uniforms. And these are members of the royal family's personal guard. She describes them as being ruthless, lightning-quick soldiers trained from birth to protect and kill. And then this is a quote directly from the book. She swallowed tightly, lightheaded, and immensely heavy all at once. 
Selena faced the room. On an ornate redwood throne sat a handsome young man. Her heart stopped as everyone bowed. She was standing in front of the crown prince of Otterland. Yes. And that's chapter I, one. I love how she ended the chapter on that moment where yeah. you're like, oh, it kind of grips you. For like, sure. You're like. A lot of her chapters end like that. Yes. You literally have to go right on to the next one. Yes. They edge you into wanting to keep going. So thoughts on the chapter. We've been introduced to our three main characters pretty much of of the series, at least until we get some more. We've got Selena Sardothian, Kale Westfall, and the Crown Prince, who hasn't been named yet. But we know it's Dorian. We know it's Dorian. So right off the bat, chapter one, we've got our three main characters. Selena's obviously a very dangerous assassin, as it describes her. She has extra guards around her at all times, and she has killed one of her overseers while in captivity. Yes. We already see her personality. She's smart. She's cunning. She's sassy. She's swaggering. We get that from the word go. Yes. And Kale is a man of few words. He's the brooder. <laughs> yes. And Sarah loves to include a brooding male in mm-hmm. all of her series. Just for once, I don't particularly enjoy the brooding male <laughs> in a series. Yeah. Um. So I found a fun fact that Throne of Glass which Sarah J. Mass was writing at the age of 15 and wrote all the way up till college. Right, throughout high school and college. She said in an interview, or maybe it was in the in the back of the book in the question answer, it was 10 years between when she first started writing it to when it got published. And she knew, so it originally was um, posted on like a... What patterns? Something. A, a, forum, like, a book forum. A book forum somewhere. And so it was originally called... Queen of Glass, and was supposed to be an adult fantasy romance novel. Um, However, she knew in college she rewrote everything, and when she was discussing it with with her editors, they said that it would work better as a YA fantasy because adult fantasy hadn't actually taken off yet. Right. And so... I think you had... It was more like Lord of the Rings, maybe Game of Thrones. Yeah. Definitely those type things. And this isn't that. This, yeah, this is like a whole, she kind of changed the adult right. fantasy world with the way that she right. wrote. And so she obviously had to age down and change the characters a little bit in this full rewrite that she did. Which is why I also believe her new covers that are coming out for Throne of Glass are her way to start transitioning into the new adult genre. And Which is what I, she did with Akatar when right. she she had those truck covers she redone. had those covers redone to be more adult like right and less childlike like the original covers and more were done. on brand with her new content. Fingers crossed we get new top content. She said she wasn't done, so she said so she possibly. misses she said she misses the witches and uh, I miss Manon so too. Do I. I'm ready. I'm aching to get to that part of the series. Honestly, I feel like her first two books are kind of prequels. Yeah. They're prequels to you can set tell, up. You can tell they were written first a while ago. Yes. And the moods and Which, when she changed. originally um, signed the book deal, they only signed for the first three books. Yeah. And so, Air of Fire had to be that big switch because that was what's 
was going to get the rest of the series sold. So I think that these two books set up Air of Fire well. So before we go, we're going to do a little bit of overview on the continent. If you have the books, even in the ebooks, there's a map. So it kind of shows you things. You can also Google it there online. With Aurelia, it's a whole continent. And this is from the Throne of Glass Wiki. From the dawn of time, Aurelia has been home to humans, wild animals, and fae. And it's compromised of the frozen waste, the western waste, which are where the witches are from, what they fight over, where Ansel Briarcliff is currently the queen of the waste. We have the deserted lands, which consists of the red desert, where the silent assassins are, Ilway, where Nehemia is from, most of the slaves in Endovier are from there because they are the ones currently rebelling against Otterland. We also have Melisande, I think is how it said. Sounds good to me. Ben Harrow, where Eurene's from, Otterland, of course, Terrison, and the Dead Islands, where Rolf and those people down there are from. And then beyond that is the Great Ocean, where we have Wendelin, and then to the south is the Southern Continent. And so I'm going to go over some background information on Otterland. So the territory was gifted to Gavin Haviliard, the first king of Adderland, by King Brannon Galathinius of Terrison, as a wedding gift for his marriage to his daughter, Elena. The, the capital is Rifthold. Other notable cities are May and Aniel, which is Kel's father is the lord of, and Morath. The current ruler is Dorian Havilard I. He has been conquering the lands of Aurelia and now rules over Melisande Terrison when they conquered it 10 years prior to Throne of Glass by killing the royal family, abolishing the monarchy, and destroying their famous library, Orient. He also controls Finharrow and Ilway. So that is it for our first chapter recap. As always, please like and subscribe to our podcast on whatever listening platform you are using. And if you enjoyed it, please consider rating us five stars. You can reach out to us with any questions or concerns at throneofchaospodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on Instagram at throneofchaospod. We would love to talk to you about all things SJM. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.